Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. And I'm Charles Rogers. And WandaVision was so good, I actually finished my frat talking about it in the pre-meeting, <laughs> so I don't actually have a frat today. Oh, are you going to try to have a frat every single episode? Uh, I'm trying to have a gay drink every episode. It may not necessarily be a frat. I really feel like I'm struggling to top the strawberry and pistachio Valentine's Day frat. Yeah. It's becoming increasingly difficult to out-gay myself. (laughs) Uh, We do have some news before we launch into the episode. Briefly, uh, we're not really a news show, but we did learn right before recording this, a couple days before this, that The Bad Batch actually has a release date, which means we have a rough episode schedule now. Yay! (laughs) Bad Batch is going to premiere on Disney+, Plus, uh, obviously on May the 4th, because obviously it would. For reasons. And it will release on Fridays after that. Now, I'm not sure at this time, I think they came out with whether or not it would also air on the 7th or whether the next week it would start every Friday, but we do know it's going to premiere on tu- on a Tuesday. It's going to be every Friday after that. Awesome. Well, good. I look forward to talking about that with you because I haven't watched, you know, a cartoon since they did the last season of Clone Wars. And that was just, to me, that was kind of, okay. So I'm excited for something new and fresh. Yes, and you and I had very different opinions on Star Wars Resistance because you tried to watch that. How far did you get in Resistance? I think I finished the first season. You and I had extremely different opinions, I remember, on that because... it's a little... I I thought it was fine. I thought it was good at parts, and you didn't like it very much. The way I look at it is all Star Wars is good Star Wars. It doesn't matter whether or not I like the content or whatever, it's not always have to be for me. So having any kind of Star Wars is better than not having any at all. So that's the way I look at it. I didn't prefer it. I thought it was a little too much of a children's show, but to be fair, you know, other shows like Clone Wars and Rebels technically started off more childish and then got more mature as they went on versus this, I just didn't, I wasn't getting the maturity fast enough. So I felt like it was strictly they were trying to make it a kid's show. Yeah, and I feel like something that sets Bad Batch apart is it's being marketed from the outset as being a much darker show than we're used to from this animation style. Right. Because it is set between Revenge of the Sith and uh, A New Hope. You know, the dark times. The dark ages. The dark times. Right. The Empire. But the... The show itself is being marketed, you know, way differently than some of these other shows. It looks like it's going to hit the ground running as far as just how, I want to say dark because dark kind of gives the wrong impression, just how mature at points it may end up being in terms of the themes that it tackles and the atmosphere that it adjusts. But that's part of the fun of Star Wars is you can you can tackle these themes in a way that's still friendly to kids. Well, today uh, we're going to be taking a look at The Mandalorian Season 1, Episode 3, titled The Sin. Uh, Don't where... worry, we will get through all of The Mandalorian Season 1 before Bad Batch <laughs> comes out. We promise. Right. Um, I figured, you know, this is going to take us a few weeks to get through, but we'll, we'll get there. 
slowly but surely what is the episode synopsis bradley what are we in for uh so on this episode the battered mandalorian returns to the client for his reward now i want to do something different this time around charles name one thing about the episode you liked and one thing you did not one thing i really liked was the way they packed a lot of character development for mando into the entire run of the episode he he goes through an arc in about 30 minutes which is really well realized which is really well executed and done very subtly in the background and it caps off kind of the arc that he's been going through for the first three episodes one thing i didn't like i felt like to an extent there were a lot of filler shots uh a lot of shuts where he's moving around that could have been accomplished a little bit faster and i get it some of it is like setting up atmosphere and things like that Mm -hmm. but there's bits where like he walks all the way from his ship to the client's house again and he's walking all the way i agree you know another place and there were certain moments in the episode where i feel like maybe one or two of the shots in this sequence could have been cut out in favor of you know a few extra things because we really we've seen all these locations before we know how long it's right. taking him there were points where i felt like there's a little bit of that on this one mm-hmm. but overall it you know it didn't bother me i struggled to come up with things i didn't like so what about you what's what's one thing you liked overall and what's one thing that re-watching it you were kind of like mm. Um, so yeah, it's weird. This is my, you know, I, when I, when it first aired, I watched it maybe like three times over, right? Each, each episode I watched about three times. This mm-hmm. is a year, basically a year late, over a year later. And I'm watching it, remembering this stuff as I watch it. Um, one thing I liked actually was I loved seeing, um, you know, the, the cute moments with baby Yoda and the ball, um, which we'll get into later, but, um, I thought he was just, he's just so cute. Um, and one thing I didn't like was not not so much that I didn't like it, but I wish we had more from it was when he goes to the covert um, area, town, underground, whatever you call it. Um, and we get to see the Mandalorians that live down there, but it's so dark. We don't get to appreciate the costuming. And the only reason why I even know what some of the costumes look like is because I do collect the Funkos. And so when all the Funkos came out, they were like, look, here's a female Mandalorian from the covert. Here's the big infantry guy. You know, this is what their costumes look like. And they look so cool on the Funkos, but you don't get to appreciate them in this episode because we barely get to see them. Big infantry guy has a name and we will get to what that name is as yes. we go through the Once episode. Once we get no, there, but I, actually, I have the Lego version of those figures as well uh it's it's not up in my apartment currently at time of recording i live in a box and i don't have room for all of that but it was one of the last sets that i bought before i moved out to la was actually there's a little battle pack you can get and it has the different colored mandalorians in it and at the time that i bought it i went did we really see this many like different colors and things in it and now watching the episode like oh no we did they're just yeah. super dark. Right. You can't see them. So it, it, that's kind of the one thing I, I was like, ugh, I wish the screen was brighter, almost a little bit, just so we could appreciate the costumes and the color. Cause I know a lot of hard work went into it. I just feel like, you know, 
maybe the photography director or somebody just like just kept it a little too dark you know the lighting just in certain wasn't scenes. there you know yeah in, so, in other scenes and we've talked about it in the past that mm-hmm. i really like kind of the horror vibe to some of these scenes where it is really dark and they're playing with the darkness and making it part of the scene right there's other scenes that i'm like man i really wish i could see this <laughs> costume that they yeah, designed that they took 10 hours to this. make yeah, ten probably more than ten hours to 10 make plus hours to make this costume. Some yeah. poor costume designer. I have a buddy of mine uh, who actually, as a recording, she uh, a show that she worked on in costuming has actually been nominated for a pretty big Canadian award Ooh. for that costume. And I was talking to her about it, and she was talking about just how much work goes into the costuming. Uh, the show she worked on was a period drama. But just the amount of work that goes in them, I was like, I kind of wish we could see these a little bit better. Maybe, maybe we'll see them again later on in future seasons. Yeah, I mean that's what I, that's what I, yeah. Once we once we get to more into who they are and you know their names and stuff, I think, and based on who's playing them and stuff, I think that'll kind of hopefully come back later because it makes sense. I mean, it would be easy for them to do it. It wouldn't be that challenging. They just has to make sense. So we'll see. Right. And The Mandalorian, like in general, is a show that it doesn't just shove things in there to shove them in there. Right. One big exception. Yeah. And we'll get to that episode we'll once get we get to, to that. that. Yeah. We'll get to that exception. Yeah. But the one, other than the one big exception, right. they don't really put things in there for the, the sole purpose of them. Right. They'll they'll there. they'll come back to it later. Even certain lines later on in the show that are going to sound like they come out of nowhere and they're in there just right. to be fan service, mm. turned out to be so much more right. than that. Um, okay, well let's get into it. So uh, our first scene, we have uh, Mando on the Razor Crest. He's going to return to Navarro, and little baby Yoda just wants to play with the ball. God, the, the Baby Yoda puppet <laughs> is so fucking impressive. It really is. Like, it's it's amazing looking at this. Like, it's obvious at points where he's mm-hmm. holding it and they're not moving it. Or it's obvious, like, where the bundle, later on in the episode, you'll see it's, it's obvious where he's holding the bundle. And they're yeah. clearly not operating the puppet. He's clearly right. just holding the he's thing. He's just holding it. But when it moves, like, god damn, I want one so much so good actually fun bit of little trivia for this episode so this episode and the pilot were shot at the same time um because obviously same scenes and same sets and stuff like that uh in some cases same exact shots but we'll get to right. that um but werner herzog who plays the client he said um because in the first in the pilot we didn't talk about this but in the pilot they shot um a lot of the scenes without the puppet they shot it thinking, oh, we're just going to animate it and just add it in CGI later. And he heard about this and he told them that they were all cowards and that they had to use the puppet because it was so good. It's one of my favorite Werner Herzog stories. And Werner I agree Herzog with him. calls Disney cowards and he's right. <laughs> it's true. Because he was like, no, if you're going to do this, fucking do it. Like, if you're going to use the puppet, then go all in and use the goddamn puppet. Like, and I'm glad they did because it looks so good at times. Like, it's almost like, you know, that, that they usually say this about um, like the Muppets or like Sesame Street or something, 
Whereas or indeed you, Yoda. Right. Well, it's like when you watch them on screen, like, you know, Elmo is not real, right? You know, he's a puppet. But when you see him standing next to somebody and talking, you something in your brain turns off and you go, that's Elmo. He's alive and he's there and he's talking to that person. And there is no person underneath with their hand moving his mouth. Like you just, in your brain, it shuts off and you go, that's Elmo. Or that's Kermit the Frog. It is impossible to watch Empire Strikes Back and not think, you know, Yoda is a real person who was on set Right. acting opposite Luke because Mark Hamill sells it so well and the puppetry mm. even in Empire was so impressive right that they managed it, you know and it's a carrying on of that tradition to have baby Yoda be this really impressive kind of machine animated puppet that's taking it to a whole new level and I'm just glad that like even when he's walking through the um, marketplace again, I mean, you know, kind of get similar shots of like the Kowakian monkey getting roasted again. Um, but there's all the characters. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's all the characters that are in the um, the marketplace and we see like a bunch of different people. And I'm like, they really wanted to go back and try to be like traditional Star Wars with costumes and puppets and animation. Like there's no like animation. Like I believe everything in that scene is real. You know, they do a good they- job at least tricking you into thinking it's all real. Disney has been pretty good at this. Uh, Even in the sequel trilogy, even in Rogue One, if they could do it, they would generally do it. I was also questioning in that scene, Mm -hmm. watching it, because Grief comes on and he talks about, you know, I don't know if he wants to eat it or hang it on its wall. And I'm sitting here going, does Grief Karga know what the asset is? Yeah, I thought about that too, because I think he has an idea of what it is. I don't know if they told him or at least maybe in some capacity he knows like he doesn't know the specifics but he knows it's a thing right it's a it must be a creature or something because why else would it be like so weird for them to say because you know like with people you don't need to send 50 plus people to go get he because grief knows about handing out the you know the um tracking fobs the tracking fobs to every single person so he knows that it's a it's not necessarily a normal thing. I'm assuming he has to at some on some level think, okay, this obviously is either a creature or something because it's why would you need to send 50 plus bounty hunters to go get this per one person? You know what I mean? So I think that's why he kind of was misleading in the first episode, I think. I think he kind of knew what it no, was. No, the head of the Bounty Hunters Guild isn't being entirely forthright. That's <laughs> shocking. And That's completely unexpected. And we'll get to it um, in later scenes, but actually it's the character of Grief Karga. I wasn't really, re- I guess I just didn't remember, but he's kind of against Mando in this episode. Like in a we're not friends kind of way. Like, And it's I a guess business I'm just, relationship. Right, but it's kind of like how we're not friends. Well, yeah, but that's <laughs> that's because I don't like you. But um it's okay, the feeling is mutual. It's, we just both <laughs> like Star Wars. Right. No, but I was getting more of a like I guess it's because I'm blinded by season two, you know, where it's without getting into it, they're obviously friends, you know, situation, or it's more of a friend situation, less than a business relationship, if that makes sense. Whereas here I, I wasn't getting this that sense yet, 
because the pilot, he's just kind of like, oh, here's a job for you, you know, like da 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 da. It's very casual. But then in this episode, it's very like, I'm your boss, like, you know what I mean, kind of thing. He's pulling the manager voice. Right. He changes up. Like he kind of flips a switch and he's like, yo, you're not doing the job correctly. You need to get your shit together. (laughs) Right. And I, you know, I've said before that when you write this sort of like episode of television and things like that, or not episode, but if you write like a television series, you have to start somewhere. Right. To build up. And I feel like the, the moments where, later on they are acting like friends are are almost more impactful because we've seen that relationship develop and this is an important step in that when he i feel like thinks he wants to put mando in a sort of box and mando is not not going to fit into that box but as you said there are scenes later on that will explore this very well right um, oh, also, in when he's uh, in the market, I noticed something. So we see, not to go too much into this creature, but we see Jawas again on Navarro in the marketplace. This is going to become the Jawa show. Well, and I thought about what you said last week about them. Like, we don't know anything about Jawas, obviously, because I always assumed they were just only on Tatooine. And then we learn, oh, they're on this random ass planet. And now they're also on Navarro. So that's three planets that they're on where they, I guess, have some kind of interstellar space travel because they're not here. Like what? So the big secret is it turns out all those Sith cultists in Rise of Skywalker at the end, <laughs> they were the Jawas they all were the along. Jawas the the Jawas were the Sith Eternal. The Jawas were behind it all. It's cr- That's the so Jawas crazy. The Jawas are always there. They're always in the background with their creepy, beady, glowing eyes and their ominous hooded robes and their guns that stun droids. They're secretly manipulating everything behind the scenes. The Jawas are Plagueis. Wake up, sheeple. Learn the truth. (laughs) They're Plagueis. Um, No, but I, I thought that was so weird. So I was like, Huh. It's just I. It's just expanding the lore, which is always a good thing for TV shows. I love that. Um, so now, obviously, that's only for like super fans. Otherwise, you just notice like that's the same creature from the last episode. I understood that reference. Right. Exactly. So it's just like a kind of you know lowest common denominator. I did have a couple of other notes with this scene before we move on to the next one. Uh, the astromech droid writing, and it comes up again later on the droid, stuck out to me for some reason. Like mm-hmm. that, it had words. I'm not sure what the words said or the designation said because uh, yeah. it was kind of blink and you miss it. Yeah. Uh, but I did see that uh, and that kind of stuck out at me and I'm not sure a hundred percent why it's just a neat bit of world building that somebody's like branded destroyed. I did note here that uh, it almost looks like in one shot, the Navarro buildings are kind of like carved into the cliff faces, which I didn't notice before it gave me like some Jedi Fallen Order vibes, which is a good game, but also did a good job of like integrating the Star Warsy buildings yeah. into the local atmosphere of whatever terrain you were on. Mm. So you had a couple of different places that you would go to, particularly there's one planet you go to and it's like cliff faces and the buildings are kind of built into it. Into the cliff. Yeah. I thought that was really cool how they design it. Yeah, it was like vaguely Tatooine-esque, but it was more... Not really? Yeah. It's his own it, thing. 
they, yeah, they were kind of like a modernized version, I guess, of that. Like if 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 Tatooine had been like slightly more advanced, I guess is my mm-hmm. my view of it. There's a stronghold in the Old Republic you can get that is that Tatooine. It's on Tatooine, but part of it is built into the cliff face. Okay. So they actually have it. It's a really neat. The design they designed to do in the Old Republic are really cool, but one of them is like the Tatooine, like we have the the idea of Star Wars buildings. Mm-hmm. So seeing them in different locales and different environments, like the rocky volcanic crags of Navarra versus the flat plains of Tatooine, that was a really neat something that just stuck out to me in that one wide shot. Um, so Mando makes his way to the uh, Empire's, um, like you said, stronghold, <laughs> kind of, their little yeah. hideout. Um, and he baby Yoda shocked and dismayed by the sudden but inevitable betrayal <laughs> I love I love the facial expressions in this scene I, yeah. I have to I have to say this I've been holding this in yeah. the facial expressions in this scene are so good he almost looks like a real actor acting with just how much his face communicates it's so good I have to give face journey. I have to give the um, animator or the puppet, the puppeteers, props here because you're right. It, like I said before, I believe that Baby Yoda is real. In Baby this Yoda scene. is real. You know what I mean? Like I, he's real in our hearts. Well, he's he. It's the facial expression, the act, the uh, the emoting. It's so lifelike to the point to where you kind of believe that it's happening for real. Like you go, oh that Mando is actually taking him and he looks at the wall droid coming out of the wall and he he's like, oh, oh, there's something that just popped out of the wall. That's crazy looking. Like, you know, it's what like he's he... seeing it for the first time. And then as he realizes what's going on and he recognizes, we'll learn later on why he recognizes the stormtroopers, but he recognizes the stormtroopers and like mm-hmm. his look of shocked, like hurt betrayal yeah. of like, how could you do this to me? I thought we were friends. Like when I watched, it was on my second viewing of the episode. I watched them twice to prepare for these shows. Watching it the second viewing, my heart just like broke. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, he's so betrayed right now. Um, actually, there was a really funny part where they're walking through the hallways with the stormtroopers and the stormtrooper grabs on to Baby Yoda's carrying case and Mando goes, hey, take it easy. You know, this, you know, he's basically, he's like worth a lot of money kind of thing. And then the stormtrooper goes, you take it easy. <laughs> I thought that was the most... so aggressive. Well, I thought it was like such a, like a childish, like remark. <laughs> like he's like, you take it. Like it's the best comeback he could come up with or something. Like it was so lame. It was so funny though. And he does, it's, I think it's... something happens like that again later on. Another one says something similar, um, but it's just like that. It's like hilarious how, the stormtroopers are just so immature. It speaks a lot to the type of person who would still be a stormtrooper at this point. Like for you to still want to be a stormtrooper, right? At this point in the timeline, under these conditions, working for these people, you kind of have to want to be a bully. Yeah, or you're just a jerk. Like you yeah. just you're just doing this for the sake of fun. You didn't really. You weren't really doing it because you thought the Empire was good or you thought like, 
oh, I'm making a difference. And no, like, you blah, just want to be better than other people. You right. just want to be status. in a position of superiority. So they get into the room with the client and uh, we get Dr. Pershing and the client and they're so excited to see a little baby Yoda, um, which you I thought what? their reactions were interesting. You know what I noticed in this scene that I never hmm. noticed until this particular viewing? What? The client has a tracking fob. Yes. The client has to pick up the tracking fob and confirm using the tracking fob right. that Baby Yoda is the asset they were looking for. Right, it starts and blinking. I didn't realize that he doesn't know right. when he's giving out the chain code to Mando and he's just jerking him around. The client doesn't actually know what Baby Yoda is going to look like. I, yeah, I guess he just kind of had the basic information. Like somebody told, well, we'll, we'll get into it in another scene, but there's a, a part where we can hear them discussing, um, you know, Baby Yoda, uh, Dr. Pershing and the client. And we'll get to it when we get to it. But he says something that's interesting, which actually kind of expands on this um to why he doesn't know what baby yoda looks like which we'll get to that in a second but um i uh anything else that they talked about in this scene where they're examining him or anything like that that you found i am i am noticing there's a few things in this scene i am noticing since our conversation with clayton last week yeah uh, i'm noticing the score a lot more interesting i'm not (laughs) <laughs> I, I was because I was noticing it in this scene how it's it's mm-hmm. there and it's underpinning so well but you would never kind of notice it and I was imagining Werner Herzog delivering these lines on set without having that score and how much of a different experience it would be right I also noticed and this is this is a reference I don't know if you have this in your notes and I'm about to beat you to it uh, this is a direct reference to a background detail in The Empire Strikes Back. The actual carrying case mm-hmm. that he receives the Beskar in. Do you know what that's called and where that's from? Uh, well, in the episode, he calls it Camtono, right? Yes. And then I don't, I mean, I know it's an ice cream maker, but I don't know the story behind it as much. Here, go ahead and tell everybody for those who don't know. For those who don't know the story behind the ice cream maker, there is a shot during the evacuation of Bespin in Empire Strikes Back where people are running around. And one of them is this guy in the background and he's just carrying this ice cream maker. And for the longest time, this was just the funniest thing and the funniest mystery of what is this ice cream maker that this dude is told like evacuate the city, leave everything behind. And he still grabs this ice cream maker and is running through the halls of cloud city with it. And for the longest time, we didn't know what this was. We now know the guy's name is Wilrow hood. And that thing is called a Camtono and it is a storage device. Right. So something was in there. He was attempting. It's like a combination safe and mm. uh, briefcase. Interesting. So, so that is actually. So he was probably just carrying something that was like very meaningful to him in there. And then... Right. But we didn't know what that ice cream maker was that right. he's running around with. And now, thanks to the Mandalorian, we do know. We what do that know is. what it is. Right. It's called a Camtono, and it carries I things. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, it, you know it's. It's the thing of like the Kubas in 
episode one. It's the little things in there for right. people like you who are going to remember maybe seeing that as a kid and being like, what is that? Mm-hmm. What's going on? I also found the client very frightening in the scene, more so than the first episode. Yeah, because when he's kind of, uh, when Mando asks him, he goes, what are you going to do with, what are you going to do with it, right? He's like, why do you fucking care what we do with it? Because before you're right. Stay in your lane. Right. Mind your business. That's what, <laughs> that's what the answer to your question is. Well, like you said before. Back off, said, Brenda. Like what you said before, he said, I don't know if he wants to eat it or hang it on his wall. You know, Mando's like, do you want to eat it? Like he basically was trying to figure out he was going to eat him. And then he goes, uh, mind your business. This is mine. And uh, isn't it against the code to ask us um, what we're going to do with it? Remember how all your people are dead? Right. Just going to casually point that out. Like oh, yeah, a yeah. huge jackass. That, that, was, that was bad too. Cause he goes, He's like, here's all your money, basically. Or here's all the metal. And he's like, but you're going to have a trouble finding someone to make the armor for you because you're all fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> nudge, nudge. So I thought that Surrounded was interesting. Surrounded by stormtroopers, just, I'm going to poke at this guy. Right. So I thought that was very uh, funny how he was doing that. But you're right. He was a little scarier in this scene than he was later. And then we get uh, our title screen. Yeah, which was later in the episode than I thought it was going to be. When I was um, sectioning out my scenes for my notes, you know, normally I only have to do one scene for the first note. And then it says title screen after the first scene. There's no like change in scenes in the first episode or the first two episodes. It's usually like a continuous, you know, first scene and then a title screen. This had multiple scenes and locations before the title screen came on, which I thought was weird, but I mean, I guess it makes sense because not too much happens on the ship and it's he's in the atmosphere and it's technically the same location, blah, blah, blah. But you're like you said before, there was a lot of filler where he was walking, you know, and then going to the building and then going inside the building and then talking to the client. You know, it was weird that they did it, but I guess it makes sense because of all the filler. Yeah. And that was what I was saying earlier at the top. If they maybe cut a few shots out of the episode overall where he's walking and then he's walking and then he's walking. Like I really liked the sequence where he was walking in episode one because it really Mm -hmm. highlights, it reminded me of the rain scene from Parasite where they go from the rich people's house to their house during the rainstorm. And it's this long extended shot, a series of shots where they're gradually going down because of course the whole film is about class stratification and you know varying degrees of wealth and as they're going from the rich person's house they gradually work their way down and it shows you just how far below them on the totem pole they are and the scene in Mando episode one like highlighted to me just how hidden and separate the Mandalorians are Mm -hmm. now it's like we get how big this place is and we also get where everything is. So maybe we spend some more time at the places doing the things right. rather than moving. The one exception being the the bounty hunter walk at the end. Right. Um, I wanted to point out too. So the title of the episode, that was interesting. So we're three episodes in and every single episode is the something. 
So I thought what they were going to do some kind of naming structure for every episode, because some shows like to do that, you know, kind of like, you know, how friends does like the one where blank or whatever. Um, or there's different, you know, every, every show does stuff like that. Not a fan of friends, but I do love that naming convention because I love naming conventions. I love naming conventions. There's a, um, this one, this one, it's just the whatever, the whatever, which is fine. I like it actually so far. Anyway, that's what it is. As far as we know, that is the naming convention for the season is the something. Um, Cause we got the Mandalorian, the child, and now the sin. So interesting. Um, actually, I don't remember the show, but I used to watch a show where every season, the episode. So the first season, every episode was one word. The second season, every episode was two words. The third season, every episode was three words. And then the fourth season, they went back to two. And then the fifth season, they went back to one. So it was like every single episode. I, don't, I can't remember the show, but that was the naming convention. I feel, like, I feel like I've heard this before, but I also can't remember which show it was. I yeah. don't know if maybe you mentioned this during our, our college days, but... I don't know where, but I know I've heard this before and I also can't remember which show it is. Well, I'm sure somebody, you know, has done before. It's not like a new thing, but I just vaguely, I, this is reminding me of that. And you know, I'm going to laugh when it's something like JJ did too. I I was just thinking like, I wonder if it was lost. I'm going to have to go back and look and see. I'm going to, after this episode, I'm going to look, I'm going to see if we can find out what show it was that did that naming convention. Yeah. So anyway, this one has the sin, and I guess we could probably talk about what the episode title means now because I guess the sin has already happened. Is that what they're trying to get at? I I think so. I think that handing him over was the sin, and the rest of the episode really is just Mando grappling with right His the decision. consequence of that action and how how he's going to move forward. Of course, he tries various things. Right. In a short amount of time, he tries various things to move on. Once we uh, come back from the title screen, you know, he goes back down to... So what is this place called again? The Covert? It's called The Covert, and I'm 99% sure they use the same... When the they have the logo, Yeah. Uh, the, the wall-hanging logo, and it pans down. One, I'm sure they use the same shot. Two, I'm pretty sure they use the same musical cue. I'm pretty sure it's identical to episode one. Okay. So I'm going to call this Covert Town because because <laughs> I it, it needs like a, like the Covert is just the name of the group. Like I need their place that they're in to have a name. So I'm calling it Covert Town. No, the, the group is the group is the tribe. So the oh, group I thought is it was called, called the, the Covert. The Covert is the physical location because at the end of the episode, he says, we'll have to move the Covert, meaning they'll have to move the physical location where they're at, where they've built up. Oh, see, I was thinking we have to move the Covert as in we have to move the group. The group is called the the tribe. Okay, I was reading. My mind is blown. I was reading a Wikipedia article. Sorry, a Wikipedia article that we will get to later. Uh, Yeah, I wasn't on Wikipedia. God, no. (laughs) Yeah, that would have all been wrong information. I was on Wikipedia earlier. There you go. Reading another article for something that's going to come up in this scene. Okay. And it did note that the group is called called the tribe, as far as we know, the tribe. Okay, good to know because now I can like that. That helps a little bit. I'm still going to call it Covert Town, but um, so like Hades Town, but right more helmets. Um, so he goes back to Covert Town. 
and he meets the armorer and he's like guess who got paid and he <laughs> brings her the medal and everybody is staring at him they can bitches i don't know if they can me, see bitches. they can like sense they can like smell the metal they're like they're like he's got something good he's got some good weed like <laughs> they're staring at him when he's walking through it's like the one guy at the club that you know has the good stuff mm-hmm. and he's got like this army of like 10 or, or so twinks around him right just hovering because they also know that he has the good stuff it's like that sort of situation where you can kind of track who's holding the best scar i do want to say too on this scene that seeing the armor from a different angle those are Maul DeLorean helm, like spikes. Like they yeah. have to be. Yeah. Like uh, originally, like in the shots in episode one, it looks like she has two. She has five in kind of a little thing on the mm-hmm. top of her head. I, I, I think she's the lady from Clone Wars, from the final season of Clone Wars and from the Darth Maul Son of Dathomir comics, because those give me such Maul DeLorean vibes and right. none of the other Mandalorians have them. They have variety in the helmets. Right. Some of them are like the Boba Fett helmets. Some of them are like the like Clone Wars helmets. But she's the only one with the horns. And not to jump ahead, I actually think when I was watching the final shootout scene, I think I actually saw one with horns. <laughs> so we need it. We'll we'll discuss it when we get there. But really? I, I could have sworn I saw one with horns. So this I was freaking we, out. This is why we have multiple eyes on these right. episodes. Um. So speaking of uh, Clone Wars and all that stuff, we meet a new character. I want you to tell us about the new character who notices Mando has all this uh, new yes. metal. What, what, give us Bradley, a little info about the heavy intra- infantry Mando. Bradley knows that I am at my most excited when I can be like, here's some Star Wars deep lore. <laughs> Let me never shut up about this. Right. Uh, the new character we meet is not named in the show, but he does have a name and the name is Paz Vizsla. Mm-hmm. And this is a reference to the actor who portrays the voice of both Prey Vizsla and Paz Vizsla. Mm-hmm. And that actor who is portraying the voice is none other than John Favreau, <gasps> who is the showrunner Shock. for The Mandalorian. I love that. Because I love, well, one, I love the nod to the Clone Wars character because he voiced the character in the show. So he's kind of like doing his own Easter egg of his own character, which is kind of funny. Um, And he's also voicing this Easter egg. So I thought it was cute. And the body actually is one of the thugs from the first episode. I was going to bring up that the body is one of the thugs from the first episode. And then the voice is showrunner John Favreau himself. Mm -hmm. I love Portraying this part. Because that's where he first started with Lucasfilm was he did the voice for uh, Pre Vizsla in the Clone Wars. And which is why if you listen, if you know what you're listening for, they do sound very similar. Now, do we know, I, I guess we don't really know this, but just because his, they just gave him the name Vizsla. So we can assume they're just from the same house. They're not necessarily the related, names- but... The names, I believe, are spelled differently. So the Vizsla Slightly is differently. differently. The names, I believe, are spelled differently. Uh, Interesting. Let me, let me double check. Yeah, please do, because I want to make sure we get all of our background info. <laughs> <laughs> we got to make sure the lore is correct. Right. Nope, they are from the same house. 
Okay, so they are they are related in some kind they are, of way. They are at least part of the same house. Now, being right. in Mandalore v, or Mandalorian society, being part of the same house doesn't mean necessarily related. Right. But they are they are part of the same house, mm-hmm. apparently. Yeah, I just I learned something physically while we were recording this podcast. There I thought go. they were two different people there from two different go. houses. And uh, nope, they are they are the same last name. Well, good. Um, I love that because again, expands the lore a little bit. But also what I like is that it leaves it open-ended. If they wanted to do, they bring the character back and make him important for some reason because he is related to a very important character in the mythos. We also get some mentions of the Mandalore, the way of the Mandalore, which is mm-hmm. you know continually interesting that they're reinforcing the idea of the Mandalore, which is not something I think that really ever came up in Clone Wars or right. Rebels. The concept of the Mandalore, which was a big legends thing, of course, it was the leader of the mandalorians right uh, but we get these mentions of that in the same scene as a character with the last name of somebody who tried to take over mandalore and reinstate the old ways right like there's some background yeah there's some background good. going on here um and we definitely get a little bit of culty vibes because they uh they get into a little scuffle um you know they get a little mad at each other but then the second the armor is like no we have to do things this particular way, blah, 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 blah. They're both kind of like, they both kind of back down and they're like, this is the way <laughs> we do not fight anymore. Like, because this is important. <laughs> the, the line, the foundlings of the future. When I first watched the episode <laughs> way back in the day, I went, oh, that's such a nice line. You know, the children of the future. Right. Always put aside a little bit for the children. And then I watch it now, knowing that they're basically this cult. Right. And I'm like, oh, you're talking about inducting children into your cult. Right. That's kind of fucked up. Yeah, I was getting more of that. Like, it's kind of, I was getting the same vibes of the the First Order, you know, stealing children to become stormtroopers like Finn. Like, it is the same thing. Like, you're just brainwashing them. Right, you're the just Jedi brainwashing to an extent. Them. You, you, the whole thing is get the kids when they're young, so they can be malleable. Right, which is it... really, really messed up. Like in general. Mm-hmm. Well, because yeah, the whole crux of you know the first three movies, basically the prequels, is that Anakin is too old, right? So he's he can't be obedient. He can't learn the ways because he's too old. He's already he rebellious. can't be brainwashed. Right, he's already a preteen so he can't like be indoctr- indoctrinated like you he's know, so. nine he's nine in phantom menace and even that's considered to be too old right well because they have too much personality by that point i guess so it's like you know he's like well he's, we can't change him so they're basically like there's a lot of this happens in star wars with yeah, yeah with with the Jedi and the first order. And now we see the tribe is doing Mm -hmm. the same thing. Like I talked about in episode one, seeing the kids running around playing with, they've got their helmets on. Right. Like it's all, it's very super creepy stuff. So the armor asked him before she starts making uh, his armor, if he uh, wants his sigil or something. Yeah. Sigil signet. 
Uh, but he says that no, because it was not an honorable kill. And it has the line, which is probably my favorite line in the whole episode. Uh, when asked why an enemy would help, he says it didn't it did not know it was my enemy right like he's thinking about it plays into that the arc that he's going through where he's thinking about what he did to baby yoda Mm -hmm. and he's acknowledging like it was my enemy but like it it had no way of knowing that right he didn't know i was against him it's just a a good line it's just a really good line and i loved it so much so once uh, they have that little conversation, um, she starts making uh, his um, armor and we kind of get this super cut, which I thought was amazing because I wasn't expecting this. I guess I should have known that when he was a child, obviously he was a child during the Clone Wars, right? It wasn't that long ago, but he's about what, 40 years old? So he, you roughly. know, roughly 40 years old. So if you do the math, right, he's kind of in the the throes of the Clone Wars. And then we see that's the exact thing that was happening when I, either his planet or his town or something is being invaded because we get these, well, we get two things. I don't know what the ship is called. I don't know if you have any notes on the ship, but we get the- It's uh, a drop ship. It's just a droid drop ship. Uh, okay, there so, is a technical designation for it. I didn't look it up. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know what the name of it was, but I noticed that it was from Clone Wars and or uh, Attack of Revenge the Revenge of the. It's actually in Revenge of the Sith. It's the oh, it's Kashyyyk. in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, and I I okay. noted here, you know, as far as the visuals of this scene, there's mm-hmm. so many good visuals, and one of them is the droid, the dropship swooping down. Oh, yeah. Because we see it from the top in Revenge of the Sith, and it looks so stupid. Yeah. Like just flying around. It looks ridiculous here. It's from beneath. It's glowing red. It almost looks like a swooping predator. Yeah, it's a menacing. Flying down. And the battle droids in general in this scene, you know, paired with, uh, they're horrifying. They're absolutely horrifying the way that they're just gunning people down. And like, we don't Mm -hmm. see that in a lot of the way that we only see them fighting clones. We never see how effective they are at like just wiping out these populations with no remorse and that paired up with like the empire sigil melting like literally the empire melting away to form this armor like the visual storytelling here is so good and you know what the the very last shot is of the super battle droid um after well first i should say you know his i guess mando's parents we assume are his parents um, put him in like this cellar, they close the doors and then there's obviously like a bomb or some kind of explosion. So we assume they're dead. And then the doors open and we get the menacing super battle droid. And I thought about it and I was like, I'm glad they chose the super battle droids instead of the regular ones because I don't think it would have had the same effect. The super battle droids are very, very frightening. They're scary looking. Like they're very the old ones, the B, the B ones, the B one battle droids. Yeah, they're kind of ridiculous. Right, and especially through the Clone Wars, like I liked how the Clone Wars show gave them more personalities as the war evolved. Right, but I also thought it made them less frightening, as opposed to some of the like the super battle droids that were still pretty intimidating. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, one last thing I want to note for this scene um, before we get to the bar scene um, is we mentioned the whistling birds, which will come back later on. It's a callback kind of thing. So they, she mentions that she'll use the uh, extra or whatever to make the whistling birds. And she said they're very rare uh, weapon of some kind. So I was like, huh, I wonder what this is. I Now, is this ever been mentioned before or is this a new thing? Whistling birds, I don't think it's been or is it just another cool mandalorian weapon thing that we're just going to learn that they have whistling bird whistling birds are new whistling birds are new to the uh to the mandalorian although i will bring up this is a note i had later Mm -hmm. regarding the whistling birds but i'll go ahead and bring it up now one thing i like is how mando is gradually like leveling up throughout this series yes so with each thing he completes i talked in episode one and i talked a little bit here about it being like video gamey in a way like Mm -hmm. it's drawing from that same kind of thing it's the same thing here to where you know he does a thing he gets a cool new weapon he can use the weapon to take on bigger challenges right gradually over time you know i thought oh that's kind of a neat way of showing his progression as a character that you know, as he goes through and does more, he gradually becomes more equipped, which is a very video game kind of thing. You'll get more weapons and armor as you go along. Right. And once he gets upgraded, he's all shiny now, um, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious at the same time. It was cool. Shiny because, and still sexy. Well, he's shiny. And it's kind of funny how he walks into this bounty hunter, you know, hangout bar and everybody's looking at him like, that motherfucker got a new <laughs> wardrobe. Like, that's what they all look at him. And then, of course, Grief Karga's like, hell yeah, look at Mando. <laughs> I mean, have you ever been at like a brunch and somebody walks in with their new boyfriend who is just like the hottest thing on yeah. God's earth and everybody's kind of looking at him like, I fucking hate you yep. so much. Yep. But then there's that one friend in the corner who's just like, yeah, get some. Right. Get some. That's the vibe that I get from this. It's like they it all so know funny. each other. They already didn't like him. And seeing him get a nice shiny new thing mm-hmm. is like, why do you get the shiny new thing? And I don't. Right. Well, that's and- because you're a failure. Right. According to Grief Cargo. Yeah, he said everybody else is losers, pretty much. <laughs> There's a robot at the bar who, when Mando walks in, he's mad about the fact that Mando got the money and he says Ichuta at him. Basically, I'm assuming Ichuta means asshole, you know, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, because it's a I callback mean, to Empire. Most likely, yeah. Most likely. And if I could get away with swearing in a different language, I'm monolingual. But if I could get away with swearing in a different language, I probably would do it. And in fact, I know people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I noted that uh, Grief Cargo's like, why don't you take a week off? Like, why don't you take a month off? You know, he's like, you want to go to the Twilight healing baths? Or what whatever? is it with straight people in Twilights? I do not get this. I, I assuming, do not. So from what I can understand from Star Wars, at least, is that the Twi'lek are so close to human DNA that are humanoid DNA that they basically are humans. And so they have been, I guess, reduced to 
kind of like with straight men and Asian women, they kind of fantasize about them. They, you know, see them as more of like a, an object, not like a, a real thing. You know what I'm talking about? That's an like interesting it's, it's like a perspective on it. That's an interesting perspective on it. I was mainly asking like out of universe sarcastically oh. why people, why straight people seem to be so into Twi'leks, but no, that's a really good like in universe explanation for maybe some yeah real world well i think of it fortunate right things that happen that may be informing this as well you know we talked about star wars addressing topics right in a way that it's not directly coming out and saying it and you know that kind of dehumanization is Mm -hmm. is definitely something that it touches on really well. That was a good answer. I know, right? Well, I was thinking also too, it can kind of, if you want to take it to the um, LGBT kind of realm, it's kind of like how with a lot of trans people um, on Grindr or something, I've always found, because I, I follow a lot of Grindr Reddits and stuff. And a lot of trans people like to complain, like they usually complain about how men like to fetishize them, um, you know, as like this exotic thing or this sex thing object and so i feel like the twi'leks are kind of like trans people almost in a way like they're kind of fetishized it's like you know they're they're regular people but they're being fetishized in this weird like exotic person kind of way and they're like "Ooh, i'm getting this special like weird thing that's freaky and i love it right and the way grief talks about it Right. Like it definitely, it definitely plays into that. And even these kind of throwaway lines, Mm -hmm. you know, or the way that we see them, the Twi'leks being treated as sex objects in, you know, as far back as Return of the Jedi. Right. But there's been stuff, there's been media in sort of later on, or sort of later on after that, before The Mandalorian, where this was presented completely unironically. Right. Like they would put them in, you know, these skimpy outfits and think nothing of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lately Star Wars has been addressing some of these unfortunate implications of their own universe that they've created, like the droids in particular. But I do believe they've also addressed this. They've also shown a different perspective on this. Right. Particular thing where the Twi'leks are kind of these objects of, you're right, fetishization right. for, you know, people who don't think they're doing anything wrong mm-hmm. when in reality you know on the other side is incredibly messed up the way that they're dehumanizing, dehumanizing. yeah this other you know group of people yeah it's like a subhuman class like they just believe that they are they're not the standard human so they are a subhuman they're basically and it's like them. it's like you know maybe there's a degree of well i'm just a better person for being more attracted to this group of exotic and not normal people. And it's like, this is really uncomfortable. Yeah. Like in universe thing. And I'm glad, you know, Star Wars as a franchise is starting to address it a little bit more because it's something that people need to be challenged to not only address in the community around them, but address when they might be doing it themselves. It's not an easy conversation to have. Uh, When, you know, he kind of tells him, no, I don't, I don't want to go to the sexy bathhouse. He says, uh, just give me the next job. And Which is so a great he, coping method, you know, right. just burying yourself in work. Right. 
Um, which I thought was kind of funny too, because he he's kind of reverted back to, okay, well, I'm back to my pilot episode character. Like, nope, just give me the job, right? And yep. um, he gives him, actually, so I don't know if this is like important or not, if it's just a throwaway, but he says, you know, he shows him the puck and it's of, uh, is it a, not a, not a corn, what's the, Mal- Mon, Mon Calamari. Calamari. And he Mon says, uh, he said, the son of a nobleman. He's like, that's a good, you know, that's a good pick. Is that supposed to be like a throwaway line? Or is that supposed to be like, hmm, is this Akbar's son or something? Like, what is the... Uh, I don't I don't think it's Akbar's son. Uh, I think it's just a throwaway line. It uh, is. Okay. We'll have to do some more research. Because I, I, cause the way they said it, it was weird that they spent so much time on it for me. It doesn't look... The, the Mon Cala that they... I believe it's a Mon Cala is what the, yeah. the singular of the species is called. The Mon Cala that they actually show on the episode is looks a little bit older than yeah. the character in Rise of Skywalker and in the comics leading up to it did. Okay. So I don't think they're meant to be the same person. I think it's just meant to be one of the noble noblemen from the planet. I mean, I know it's very racist of me to be assumed that he's related to Admiral Akbar. But, right. They don't uh, all look the same, Bradley. <laughs> but he is a fish person. You are so being it's speciesist again. Speciesist. Um, and then uh, my last thing for this scene was that, um, man, uh, you know, Mando's like, he feels kind of, you kind of tell he feels bad a little bit about Baby Yoda, where he, he tells, um, grief cargo he says like he's like what do you think they're gonna do with it you know and he's like i don't know i didn't ask because that's not a part of the code like we just don't ask we you know don't tell like we don't really care and he's like why don't you go tell the new republic in the core if you really care that badly and he's like oh that's a joke fuck the new republic yeah we like, kind of see there's those already guys. we kind of already see there is this kind of weird relationship with the outer rim and the new republic already because they're kind of like the new republic is a joke <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a well they're just they can't even get their shit together in the core so why do you think i'm gonna care about what's going on here in the outer rim it always bothered me in the old eu before it was star wars legends it always bothered me how the new republic they decide to basically go back to exactly the same system of government and exactly the same circumstances that led to the rise of the empire in the first place and other than some conflicts, some internal conflicts, basically everything after that is fine. And in reality, when you go back to exactly the same thing that led to the rise of the fascism, you risk the fascism just rising again, which of course is what we see happen in Star Wars Resistance, uh, The Force Awakens, and we are going to see as the show goes on the Mandalorian and other new Republic shows have also promised to start showing kind of what was happening. And part of it was too, that, you know, the new Republic sprung up and nobody took it seriously. Cause they were like, Oh, we're just going to go back to the thing that worked. And it held together while Mon Mothma was chancellor because Mon Mothma is the best. But when she left, you know, it's the same thing as America. It was great when Washington was in charge. And then the second he left and he wasn't there to hold everything together, it all started splintering apart. Um, so Mando gets back on his ship. 
and uh, he starts to take off and then he goes to reach for the, I guess the lever or something. And he notices the ball is not attached to the lever and he gets reminded of the baby that he gave up. <laughs> and then he, like he goes on this whole journey. Yeah. We never see his face. I, it, the, the emotion that I'm assuming it's Pedro Pascal at the moment uh, that they're filming this, because like I said, we never know if it's ever him or just a body double, but the level of emotion and not showing his face and the, like, you can see the wheels turning in his head, even though we can't see the wheels turning in his head because we can't see his facial expressions. And he goes, Oh, baby liked the ball on the end of the thing. I probably shouldn't have given up the baby. I should probably go back and get the baby. Like, it's there's just a like, moment where he's standing over the, the, the like dumpster, and he sees the baby Yoda crib. Yes, and you can actually pinpoint the exact moment where he resigns himself to, "I am actually going to do this," and we never see his face the whole time it is all body language it is Mm. all in the score it is all in the way it is shot right it is unbelievable how they managed to give this character an arc and a personality and an emotional journey Mm -hmm. without us seeing an inch of skin for three episodes um so he when he heads back to the uh empire's hangout or whatever he uses his little scope to kind of spy on the empire or whatever like kind of you can kind of he can kind of hear inside what's going on and this is where i wanted to come back to because before you know when you said that the client didn't really know anything about baby yoda um it was very interesting because when we hear when he's spying on pershing and the client talking uh pershing basically says to the client, he says, um, he has explicitly asked us to bring it back alive. And so we don't know who he is yet at this point, but there's obviously a higher power that's telling them what to do. It's Grand Admiral Thrawn. No, <laughs> I, I just always assume it's Grand Admiral Thrawn now. Right. It's either Grand Admiral Thrawn or Palpatine. Right. Either Palpatine. Um, it well, was Palpatine all along. <laughs> Well, if honestly, if you saw Rise of Skywalker, did that come out? That came out by this point, right? Yes. That came out. So that came out uh, midway through the first season. So it hasn't come out yet at this point. It has not come out at the time this episode has aired. See if, okay. So now think about it. Now think about it this way. They're talking about there's some guy, right? That is controlling their actions, essentially. You're telling them what to do. So imagine if you had seen Rise of Skywalker at this point, you would have been like, holy fucking shit it was palpatine that was telling them what to do you know what i mean like it's I could, always palpatine you can jump to that conclusion <laughs> the answer to everything is palpatine right you can jump really quickly to that conclusion you're like oh mando kind of breaks in and starts kicking but and mando he, kills the the door droid like I just know. like we all wanted to and return to the jedi i think it's, it's so sad. annoying and a jerk nah no nah it isn't the thing's a jackass fucking shoot it oh no i love it i love the voice of the wall i think it's so funny like i i I don't know it's so nostalgic for me um but anyway he he starts beating up everybody and then he makes his way to uh pershing and i do love in the scenes with the stormtroopers the we talked about some scenes maybe being too darkly lit 
yeah in the show this is one where it's not this is one that makes really great use of the darkness in yeah. the scene to highlight just how terrifying mando is in the dark right and, and, and how much he can weaponize it well it's like you said that horror kind of vibe where he kind of stalks his prey essentially like you know they kind of burst into the room and they're like we're gonna surround him he can't get out of here blah 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 blah. you know and then he gets the drop on them because he's being so like secretive and sly it's i don't know it's really cool um how they do it so he gets to pershing's room and pershing actually in this scene acts really strange so because we know he's working for the empire but you know he's one of those people it's very clear in this uh scene that he's one of those people who just works for the empire like it's just a job like he's he has not, his morals he crams so much character into this one scene because yeah. he has absolutely no indication that mando is not here just to kill the child yeah he thinks that mando is evil in some and kind of his way. his reaction is to throw himself in front of the child right and go don't hurt him he's just a kid right which that's the reason he survives and it's such right. like to to be that kind of person to be like to have to stave off the client and stave off everyone yeah. who was trying to just be like, just kill this thing and be done with it. And here comes Mando barreling in there, who's already killed guards and killed a guard in front of Pershing. Right. And Pershing's reaction is going to be to jump in front of the kid right. and go, dude, he is a kid. Yeah. What are you doing? Which of course being the reason he survives this episode. Right. Well, and it's also interesting too, because he, he basically, he tells Mando, he's like, the only reason why he's alive is because of me. The, the only reason why the child is still living is because I'm taking care of him. Once he realizes that Mando is not there to kill the kid. Right. And he's like trying to reinforce this. Please yeah. don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Because he switches gears. Yeah, he to, kind of goes to a survivalist from, at that yeah. point because he realizes he might be able to get out of it. And it's interesting too, because he really is like almost the definition of like, He's not evil. He's just a scientist. Like he's only doing this obviously for the scientific kind of discovery or whatever the situation is. We don't know yet, but he obviously is doing this for the knowledge purposes. He's not doing this because he's evil or he wants like he has some ulterior motive. Or he something. has a code of ethics and yeah. you know, those ethics are clearly very strong where he dives in front of the kid, but right. there's a lot of him just to unpack in this one scene alone. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, this is the, at this point, you know, this will be the kind of leave him, uh, Mando kind of leaves him alone in the room alive. Um, so I wonder if we'll get to see more of Dr. Pershing later on in the show at some point. I wonder, yes, he's a very interesting character. It would be nice to see him again. Yeah, it would also be kind of interesting to see if he somehow can join the team I kind of always look at the hero of the of a TV show as like having being the leader of the team. So there's always like random characters get added to the team as the show progresses, right? And so I feel like he's one of those characters who could potentially end up being a team member or an asset hmm. to the team in some kind of way. That would be, he would bring an interesting new dynamic to things. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, since sometimes you know real world things happen where the actors can no longer be on the show and so we have to replace a character with a new character uh hopefully uh or play with the dynamics that we have left 
That's true. To establish. We don't know so what they're going to do, I guess. It will be interesting to see uh, if certain characters right. that are still on the show have mm-hmm. elevated screen time as a result of certain other characters maybe not being in the show anymore. I actually do have that uh, later on. We'll talk about, um, at the very end, uh, we'll talk about Carl Weathers and uh, Grief Karga's character because I have some trivia on that at the end. Oh, neat. Um, but for now, we have to get out of this room and I have yeah. to say this. I have, to, I have to, to record this for posterity. But for the first time <laughs> in the show, yes, and one of the only times in the show, the flamethrower is useful. Oh my god, he finally it works it out. And it does the thing it's supposed to do. And there is nothing bad that happens as a result of it. The flamethrower is finally a helpful thing. Right, I noted that. The second he gets out of the room, he uses the flamethrower. And he, it actually hits its target and is effective <laughs> against the target. And it's like, oh. I took out that stormtrooper. Moving on. Oh, the the flamethrower works. Okay. Um, and then in the next room, I, I keep I love how we like go just from room to room with each like situation. Um, he in the next room, he finally gets surrounded um, by a bunch of stormtroopers, which obviously is finally our callback to uh, what we learned earlier in the episode where. Uh, the armorer said, you know, these are whistling birds. They are very useful for lots of enemies around you or something, she says. So it's like a nice little callback, quick callback, actually, because it wasn't that long ago we learned about the whistling birds. So no, I wonder, I wonder if there is a term mm-hmm. for, say, example, writing a gun over the mantle place in your play and having it be mentioned in act one and the gun needing to be fired in act three. I wonder if that term exists. Does it? It, it does, it's called a Chekhov's gun. Oh, okay, I was like, wait a minute. I was like, uh, is it supposed to like mean something to it me? It does, it's called a Chekhov's gun. And Chekhov's if gun. you had to sit through as many, and you didn't really have to because you were in TV production, but if you had to sit through as many writing classes as I did, in college, you would have had that along with a lot of other terms beaten into your head. Gotcha. Yeah, so he finally uses the, what we now know what the whistling birds are, which are just like mini missiles that are, I guess, heat seeking or some kind yeah, of seek like seek out and like murder people. Murder you <laughs> really quickly, um, which I thought that was really cool. And the only th- issue I had though, well, actually I didn't have an issue with this because what I liked is that she said, in the in the earlier she said they are very rare so you won't be able to use them all the time so it's something that like okay if you use them once you use them they're gone kind of thing so i thought that was interesting because i thought okay this is a one-off kind of weapon which is nice because you don't want him to be too overpowered because if he gets too overpowered then it's like well he can just do whatever he wants, you know, in the show. And that's, I think the problem with a lot of writers is they'll do that. They'll make their hero, like they'll start writing him where he starts off really weak and then he gets really strong towards the end of a show, but then they keep him strong and they have to keep inventing new ways to make him weak so that the plot can move forward. And so what I like is that she kind of, they, they kind of wrote him a temporary solution to this problem 
but without making him so overpowered that they're not going to go, well, why doesn't he have the whistling birds every episode? Why doesn't he use it every single time? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was talking earlier, I, you know, I mentioned a few times how sort of video game progression ties into the way that Mando as a character has progressed. I've been playing a lot of Hades in my spare time okay. uh, because Thanatos is my boyfriend. And in that game, the way, the thing that it does that it does really well mm-hmm. is as you do runs of the game, as you take on, you know, challenges and get rewards, the challenges ramp up as you go through. Right. So even though you are becoming more powerful, you never feel like you're breezing through every run all the time right. because the further you get through, the more challenging it's going to become. Yes, you could breeze through the first three few levels after getting some upgrades, but then you're going to hit even more challenging ones, which are also challenging because you had to breathe through the first couple of levels to get through them and maybe you made some mistakes there. Right. It feels like Mandalorian over the course of two seasons of the show is doing a good job. The threats that he's facing, he's becoming more powerful, gaining more allies, gaining more weapons and, and armor and neat tricks like that. But the threats he's facing will also elevate right. to match how good and how well-equipped he's becoming. Exactly. So in the next scene, uh, we get back to the bounty hunter bar and then all of a sudden, everybody's tracking fobs start to activate all like really quickly. Um, and I thought, I love the sound, first of all, that the tracking fob makes. I don't know why. It's just like a simple beep, but it like, when they're all going off at the same time though, it's so fascinating because you're like, wait a minute, somebody reactivated those tracking fobs to get Mando. Like It's simple and elegant and you yeah. know immediately what it is. Star Wars right. has always had great sound design. Mm-hmm. So it is cool to see this continuing that trend. And I like, I like how Mando just casually is walking through the town. Like he's like, I'm just going to walk to my ship just very <laughs> casually with the baby in my hand. No one's going to stop me if I walk really slow. Like, and then you can this see is, everybody. This is the walk that I felt worked. Yeah. This is the one that I was like, yeah, the escalating tension makes this work. And you can kind of yeah. see the bounty hunters mm-hmm. moving kind of slowly, behind him. Slowly surrounding him. Um, and then they do end up surrounding him and Grief Karga is like, okay, Mando, let's relax now. Give me the asset and everything will be okay. Help <laughs> me, like, Mandalorian. I'm your only hope. I thought that was such a funny line. He's like, I'm your only hope. Um, and I went, hey! I was like, they did it. Roll credits. They said, they said, they said hope. Roll credits. They said hope. We're done. Uh, we beaked. I do love the little shootout scene. Very classic uh, Western style. I like that the droid has self-preservation when he points the gun at it and he's like, drive. And the droid's like, yes. aware enough to be yeah. like, okay, I'm going to drive now. Yeah. Well, well I, like, I like it's kind of that same, it's that trope of the hero is trying to get away from the bad guys and he gets, he breaks into a taxi or something and the taxi driver's like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, drive, drive, you know? And then the taxi driver takes off and just like, I don't want to die. Like, so it's kind of the same situation, just a, There's, a They use a lot of tropes in this show and in this yeah. scene in particular. I thought it, I thought really it well. was, I thought it was interesting when, when Mando vaporizes the 
the guy with the disintegrator rifle griefs like hey that's a really interesting weapon you've got there which implies that you know he's never seen it I thought that, yeah i saw that too because actually there was two things that happened in this scene that were so weird so that which was really weird i did point that out that he was like he doesn't i was like he doesn't know what mando he's uses and he's employed by him this? yeah like what he doesn't know um so that was one thing and then guess what i saw in the background um which is this is why i love star wars because you you never notice things in the background until later there is a character in the background well there's two, there's two characters i actually one i only noticed the one uh or i noticed it but it wasn't like that important to me until I was looking up trivia for this episode. Um, but I did notice the other trivia point before I even looked up the trivia. So the one thing was we see uh, a Zabrak. What's it called? Is that how you say Zabrak. It? Okay, so we see Zabrak. A, well, they were Zabrak. originally called Zabraks. They're now like the Knight Brothers or oh, okay. something. One of the bounty hunters is a Zabrak. Um, and he's in the background and the trivia for this episode was that this is the first time we see a prequel era alien in the show hmm. so the zabrak is considered a prequel era era alien because darth yeah, maul, it's darth maul. Um, and so that was one little trivia thing but guess what we see in the background that shows up later in the show i don't know why why don't you tell me what you noticed and you were very <laughs> proud of um, so I have him on my wall right now, but, uh, cause I have a Funko pop of him, but the character from the prisoner episode, the robot zero or Q nine zero E or whatever, he's in the really? group of bounty hunters going after Mando. Interesting. Yes. I did not know that. I know I didn't either. And I randomly saw it this time around and I was like, wait a minute, that's the robot from the prisoner escape episode. You know, I, I remember I was watching the bar scene. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't notice a robot, but my brain went, oh, is that Forlom? That might be Forlom. I didn't put together that it was the robot from yep. the prisoner episode that's mm-hmm. going to happen it's later the on. the same robot. So I thought that was so cool that he was in this scene and he shows up in a later episode. I thought that, so Q9E uh, is, is something along those lines. Um, I thought it was cool that he shows up. Uh, aside from that, uh, you know, the flamethrowers flame back to being shit. <laughs> right. I was going to say flamethrowers back to being useless. It uh, runs out of fuel or something in the middle. And I went, oh, yeah. there we go. I was the like, status well, quo has been restored. Yeah. I was like, that's why I didn't really find that very interesting. I was like, okay, well, moving on from that, because I was like, oh, that was lame. Uh, I will note every episode of the flamethrower being garbage. <laughs> I will make 100% sure that I have a record because the flamethrower being garbage after being hyped up as being the coolest thing is the funniest running Mm -hmm. joke in the show to me by a mile because it personally is something I find hilarious. Um, What I love about this scene is the climax and and that is when we get, like you said, the tribe, I guess they're called now. I was going to say the covert. Um, The tribe comes to Mando's rescue all of a sudden. Um, I have two problems with this. For some reason? Yeah, I have two problems with this. Well, actually, no, I only have one problem. And my problem is, how did they know Mando was in trouble? It's not I like he sent out an email, like, I need help. <laughs> I more want to know, like, why did they bother? 
Yeah, they were they were hidden. What, who cares if like, one person Mando, dies? Mando gets shot at like every other week, and they're right. not showing up. I'm sure this may be explained in later seasons that haven't aired yet. Yeah, uh, I feel like like I was watching. I was going. I wonder if there's an explanation here. Mm-hmm. You know, but they they implies they throw themselves into it. Right. For some reason, and then. They, this is the way, and that basically ends the conversation then and there. I want just one instance where someone goes, this is the way, and the other person goes, really? Really? Why, like, yeah. no? Why is this? Why the- is this the way? Yeah, no. I, maybe I, explain to me the logic here. Well, either way, I, I mean, it was cool that they all came in on their little jetpacks because we haven't seen that yet. You know, we haven't seen more than one Mandalorian on the screen at the same time flying. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and they all kind of float in uh, and I guess kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the bounty hunters are woefully outgunned here. Yeah, for sure. Especially when like, our new character comes in with his machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> yep, just showing up and this is the way. Right. Uh, okay. I, I'll but take your word for it. I, and I like, I know how we said, like we talk about tropes, but this is that same trope of at first we were enemies and now we're friends. So the, the heavy inter- infantry uh, Mando is like, get out of here. We've got this, you know? <laughs> it's very, it is very tropey writing, but it's executed yeah. so it works. well that y- you kind of have to give it its props. Like, yeah, I know what you're doing. You know, later on in the same scene when, you know, Mando shoots Grief Karga and then we find out, oh, it's the the not a Bible in his breast pocket. Yes. That saved him. It was. And I'm like, that's such a trope. Yes. That's such a thing that we've seen a thousand times before, but it works so well here because they set it up properly. Right. It makes sense. And they did it It so subtly. Genre. Well, because like in the beginning, I, you know, what's funny is I didn't even catch that that's what they were doing when they did it, but he pulls it out when he's like, he's like, you did such a good job. Even I got paid. Right. And he pulls the metal out of his pocket and then he puts it back into his breast pocket. And we didn't, I didn't read into that too much until now. And I was like, they set that up at the beginning. They were like, look where he puts it. He puts it right in front of his heart, you know, so that he's protected. And then they, then they shoot him and then he's fine. Which actually, this is where my trivia about Carl Weathers came in. Um, so in the original script, uh, Grief Karga was supposed to die here. Um, he was going to get shot and then just die. And that was it. The character was done. And that's because before, when the, in the beginning of this writing, uh, Grief Karga was an alien. He was not a human. And so it was just some actor was going to be you know, with some kind of alien race and then was just going to die right there. Um, But when Carl Weathers got the job, uh, they got rid of the makeup idea because they were like, well, we're not going to put makeup on this guy. He's too much of a character. Like the actor is too much of a character. We don't want to ruin that. And then they expanded his role because they liked him so much. So they were like, well, we can't kill him because we like this guy. So we got to bring him back at some point. So I thought that was so cool. Like, imagine just being that cool of a person. They were like, we're going to expand your role because we like you so much. And without going too much into it, they will also expand his role behind the scenes as the show goes on. 
Yes, uh, which I don't. I don't think that doesn't happen until season two, right? Season two, they will expand. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's something that I see people criticize Star Wars for a lot, and mm-hmm. I think it's kind of disingenuous to say because it's kind of how everything works, where they have a loose plan of where they kind of want to go, right? But they're kind of making the stuff up as they go along, which is good. It, it feels like they're you know setting things up and they have Mm -hmm. these deep cut lore mysteries but really they're just making this stuff up as they go along and they're trying to make the best show and the best content possible so it's the same thing with with marvel marvel is you know fantastic at looking like it has a plan right but if you watch some of the marvel films you start to realize that there were some points they really didn't have a plan and were just making stuff up. Star Wars is the same way, but I feel, feel like Star Wars gets a little more flack for it. Right. Uh, and there was a Mandalorian, there was actually an interview after season two where John Favreau basically said, yeah, we basically make up every season as we go along. Hmm. I think it keeps it fresh. It's a good, because um, I think the problem is if you plan too much, then you're stuck to what you planned you can't get out of it. You know, you're like, oh, well, crap, we have to make it so that this character dies. We have to do this. You don't have the freedom to go, well, you know, actually I realize, oh, this is how it should keep going because it's naturally progressing, which is This good. is a really good character. Let's right. keep him on let's, the show. Or, let's expand his character, you know, yeah. In tragic circumstances, we lost an actress who passed away between films. Right. We need to make sure that you know, she's given a good send off and we need to kind of write the script around what we do with this character to make sure that she's properly sent off in the best way we possibly can. So it, it does help to keep it open and it does help to like explore new storytelling possibilities. I also liked in this scene, cause I'd mentioned before, oh, we never get to see the carbonite chamber get used again. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. It is used here. Yeah. It's a great effect. Now, does it freeze anyone in carbonite again? No. But it is set up and payoff. It's set up in episode one. It right. pays off here. But yeah, I kind of like how he kind of uses it as a distraction of some kind. Um, and I only had two more things for uh, the episode. The one where he's flying away and we see the heavy infantry uh, Mando flying next to the ship with his jetpack, and he kind of waves at him, and he's kind of like, have a good flight, buddy. We'll see you when we see you. Um, I thought that was just funny. Um, there's I want a, little... a jetpack, too. I know. That's what he said. He's like, I got to get me one of those, which setting up something that may or may not happen in a later season. So I thought that was interesting that they set it up this early. I mean, I think they knew they were going to do that at all times, but it's like a good like little hint like hey here's what we're gonna do later on there's room to grow still you've you've got new armor you've got the whistling birds which are a fun new weapon right but there's still room to grow as a mandalorian and as a character to really come into your own and Mm -hmm. who you are and and learning to be a better person right going forward it's all thematic i mean maybe i'm reading too much into it because i write a wrote a lot of eighth grade book reports Right. But that that could be an interpretation of that scene and where it's kind of leading with that arc. Um, I love the end of the episode uh, because they end it with... they Because they... Okay, I always say that comedy comes in threes. 
So this isn't comedy, but it's essentially, it's the same, they follow the same rule in this episode. So the first time we see it is Baby Yoda wants to play with the ball in the very beginning of the episode. And he's like, no, don't play with that. It's not a toy. The second time we reference the ball is when he's in the ship and he realizes he made a mistake because he sees that the ball is missing off of the lever. And he goes, huh, maybe I should go back and get Baby Yoda. Third time they mention the ball is in this very end scene where Baby Yoda is sitting behind him and he takes the ball off and he gives it to Baby Yoda to play with. It's like that rule of threes. And I love that. It was just such a fun little like arc. We had a professor in college that I know that would be very proud of you for saying that, that yes. you, you picked up on that. I love I stuff like that. At least one of our professors in college that would have been like, that is a good catch. I could talk <laughs> about it for 20 minutes. Right. Yeah, and why? Like, it's like a classic movie thing that you're supposed to do. Like, da, 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 da. Um, I thought that was I'm- so cute. I liked how it ended with the hyperspace jump because I mentioned in episode two that it mm-hmm. didn't and I was surprised. This right. time it does end with the hyperspace jump signaling to an extent Finally. the end yeah. of the mini arc. And yeah, I noticed that to too. So what I, so what, I, what I noticed about this whole entire thing was that so the, we're kind of essentially, if you think about it, we're done with the first story arc. It's one episode one, two, and three is one arc. It's just one story that... It's a mini story, but it, it's, you know, it's him getting the job, getting the child, and then getting the child back. Like, it's just a real quick blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think what's interesting about this, though, is if you would have cut out half of the second episode and you just kind of introduced him going to the Mudhorn and then using his powers, you technically had a two-hour movie. You know, this, this little mini arc could have been a movie if you wanted to make it a small mini movie if you did i you know even even leaving the stuff with the jawas in in the second act and just making it like one two hour or so film yeah back in the days when they used to make films that were two hours although some of the sequel trilogy and things have pushed two hours yeah uh it it really does like such a great job of being internal and self-contained like there were bits of it that if I'd seen it as a movie, if I didn't see it as a TV show, I would have been like, eh, I don't know why you're here. Right. But in the context of a show, shows have a lot of time to slow down. And what this first three episode arc does really well is slow down, give us time with Mando and the child mm-hmm. to learn, you know, see them develop and learn, learn to trust each other and learn kind of who they are, or at least who Mando is as a person. So... Mm -hmm. um and then finally once we do jump from hyperspace we get the directed by now this is very significant this is so so uh, we get directed by deborah chow or cho sorry uh or is it chow i have it sorry i had it two names i had it two ways in my notes it's deborah chow Um, it is deborah chow okay just want to make sure i'm getting that right um deborah chow not only uh, one, she did a great job. This is a good episode. I think overall, I liked this episode. I thought the direction was good. I thought it, for what she was given for her plot to kind of wrap up the story, she did a good job. Um, but she is also the first woman to direct a Star Wars project. But she will not be the last on The Mandalorian. No. Which is refreshing 
because if you think about it, girls like Star Wars too. So it's just weird to think that like not even the TV shows had amazingly like, Disney has discovered. But like so what, girls like Star Wars too. But I, I'm so I'm so shocked. Like no one even not there's not there wasn't even a woman that directed a single episode of like the Clone Wars or Rebels. Oh, uh, I don't think so. I would have to check. Well, because I mean, otherwise, why would this be in the little, you know, trivia section? But like, unless they're only considering this like a big project, you know, like a, a live action TV show and a movie. Like that's well, all they're considering. Deborah Chow is also important. Yes. Uh, it's important to us personally and the direction of what we do because mm-hmm. she is set to direct the Kenobi show. So... I, so I have two things with that. So one, yes, they thought she was so good on this episode. They were like, let's give her a whole series. <laughs> let's give her the series. Right. The one that everybody's anticipating. They're like, this is what we all want. And we're going to give it to her. So, I mean, no pressure on her, but like, that's a pretty big order. Yeah. And definitely she, I, I expect she's going to live up to it. I really have a lot of faith because this one and the other episode that she will later direct are both really good episodes. Yeah. Really solid. She's, we talked in, in, I believe it was the pilot about giving Hayden Christensen a good director. I'm really excited to see what she does with Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor. I think she's our saving grace. (laughs) Um, I, I have faith in her. Yeah. But it is very exciting to watch these episodes and know that, Oh yeah, she's coming in with the with the Kenobi show. Right. Yeah, because I, I thought about it too. Um so the other thing I had about the Obi-Wan, so she's gonna be directing it, but I think they changed the verbiage on that. Cause you can't direct the whole entire show. So I think she's she's helming the show, is what they're trying to say now. Basically, she is the creative director of the show she is basically going to be in charge of the creative direction the show is going in she is going to be i.e the main producer she might direct a few episodes but she's not going to direct every single episode because that would be crazy it would be interesting to see if she directed all six episodes of a limited series i mean i could be wrong that would be a that would be a herculean task that's what i'm saying incredibly impressive thing I, I could be I could be complete I could be completely wrong in that aspect because that would be like if John Favreau was like, well, I'm gonna do the pilot, but I'm also gonna do every single episode afterwards because I gotta make sure it's exactly what I want and I can't let anybody else touch it because if I let anybody else touch it, they'll ruin it kind of situation. So I think she'll be okay, but I don't think she's gonna be directing every single episode. I could be wrong. But I think that's a little too much to ask of one person. So I don't know. We'll see. It's only she like, is, what, six episodes? So I mean, she is listed on, on Wikipedia as the director, as the director of the whole show. So, oh, okay. We, we'll we will see yeah. what happens with this, but it will certainly be interesting to take a look at. <laughs> this will happen like, forward. what, two years from now, we'll probably get this show? Yeah. Yep, and we'll all still be in quarantine. <laughs> right, we can I was binge say, watch it in quarantine because we'll we're, all we're talking still about be there. It. We're talking about it now, like it's going to happen, and like soon when we all, we both, you and I know that it's not going to happen for at least two to three years from now. Oh um, no, aren't they? They're just about to like start filming it. 
I, yeah, I think they're just now going to do it and they probably will hold on to it once it's done and not release it for a very long time. <laughs> just very, because that's how it works. That's how it works. They got to keep to their release schedules. They got to make sure they're getting that content out to us. Right. All right. Well, that's all I had for the episode. Anything else for you? Nope. We are now finished with the first arc. And next episode, we will go into some monster of the weeks. Mm-hmm. And we will see what happens with the rest of this season going forward. And we'll do some other fun stuff. And then it'll be bad batch time. But for now, we've got quite a few more episodes of The Mandalorian still to get through. Exactly. Um, and if you haven't uh, listened to any of our previous episodes, why are you listening to this episode? Unless you just really love the third episode of The Mandalorian, go back and listen to our other episodes. They're there they're, for a reason. They're available on Spotify and a lot of other places that I don't remember because my brain is bad. Yes. Uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to listen to uh, your podcast, we are probably on there. We really are like the gay agenda coming in and infesting (laughs) all of your beloved podcast stations with our gayness. Exactly. Um, I also, as of this point, I just uh, started a Instagram page for us. So we officially have a Gold Squadron Gays Instagram page. Not going to post on it too much because, I mean, this is a auditory medium. So there's not really much need for it, but I wanted to grab it before, you know, Someone yeah, else did. Happened. Yeah. Um, we also so follow have, us, follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. Um, also, uh, I have our email uh, listed on the uh, about section of this podcast. You can email us at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, and you think, hey, they messed that up, or hey, they didn't talk about this scene randomly. Uh, please let us know if there's ways we can improve your listening experience. If you can find one scene in The Mandalorian that we skipped, I will be very impressed. (laughs) Exactly. Follow us on socials, and we will see you next week for another episode breakdown. Until next week. Bye.